Well, good morning, Eastridge. Great to be with you today. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, elders, for inviting me to join you. It is an honor. It is a joy to bring the Word of God to you. As Sam mentioned, my name is Stephen Dewey. I am the associate pastor at First Baptist. It's a joy to serve there. been a part of that flock now for four years and just love the ministry God has given me. My wife, Veronica, and our three kids, Oliver, Mabel, and Lucy, would have loved to have been here, but leaving at 6.45 a.m. was just a tad too much for them, so you just get me this morning. <clears throat> I want you to know that I hold this church, East Ridge Baptist Church, in very high regard. For a few years, as Sam mentioned, I was youth pastor up in Issaquah, and I was fresh out of seminary, and your church was my closest friend and ally. Pastor Ryan Triziak connected well, and he really mentored me as I got going in the ministry after seminary, and so Pastor Ryan and I are our dear friends, and I'm glad to hear how he's doing in Jacksonville. I saw him in Memphis, Tennessee back in October. It was a joy to reconnect and to hear what God's doing in his heart and life. Um, in 2018, we did join forces for a summer camp, and I'll never forget those times together, especially our late-night glow-in-the-dark four-way capture the flag and, and uh, crazy double kickball madness with uh, swimming pools for bases and a slip and slide from third plate all the way home. And we just had a great time out there together. Who was with me on that camp? Raise your hand. Got a couple, okay, a handful this morning. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Well, th again, thanks to my dear friendship with Ryan, Sam, and the legacy of this church and pulpit. Again, I am honored to be here with you this morning to open God's word. Our text today is Colossians 1, 21 to 23, and we are continuing our study in Colossians that you began at the beginning of the year. I've titled today's sermon, Reconciled, Ready, and Resolved. And from it, we will be exhorted to cling to Christ, for he has reconciled you to make you God's child forever. What a magnificent text we have today. We'll, we'll read it, we'll ask the Lord for grace to comprehend it, and then we'll unpack it. So let's look at our text, Colossians 1. 21 to 23, and I'll be reading from the ESV translation. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, guide our time in your word today. May your spirit soften hard hearts, comfort weak hearts, and mold every heart into conformity with your Son. Use your powerful word this morning to accomplish your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians are like fraternal twins. They are not identical, but clearly they are related. If you put Colossians and Ephesians side by side, you will see many similarities and flow in content. Both letters uh, contain in chapter 1 theologically rich prayers for the church body, in which Paul expresses thanks to God for his sovereign choice in their salvation. Both letters very much exalt Christ in chapter 1 as well, expressing the glory of God through what has been accomplished in his Son. Most notably in comparison between these two books, in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians and chapter 3 of Colossians, they parallel each other in their explicit calls to put off the old self, to renew the mind, 
and to put on new self in Christ. These calls are then followed by lists of what believers are to put to death, how we are to think instead, and what godly behaviors we are to put on to replace the sinful behaviors. And these lists both conclude with instructions for husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, and slave masters. All that to say there is much overlap between these two letters, Colossians and Ephesians. And perhaps the most well-known portion of Ephesians is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I have personally lived in these 10 verses over and over and over again as I explain the gospel to people. I love this section of text because the, the riches of salvation are all right there in perfect order laid out for us. In those 10 verses, we see who we were before knowing Christ. We see what God has done to reconcile us to himself, and we also learn that that gift of reconciliation, we learn how it's received by us through faith and not of works. It's a glorious text, and I wager that many, if not all of you, love it just as I do. Today's text in Colossians is the parallel text to Ephesians 2. We'll see some instant similarities between these two texts, though ours is much briefer, of course, We'll also note some differences as Paul has different purposes in writing to the Colossians. You're probably well aware of the context for this book by now, being, I think, your fifth sermon in Colossians, but because it does pertain to our text, I want to consider the context afresh. Just a brief backup here. The city of Colossae was once a big and thriving city, but by Paul's day, the rerouting of the main road to nearby Laodicea had lowered its trade and therefore also its population. It was a city kind of depressed, potentially in decline. The city was also mostly Gentile, though there was a large Jewish population there dating back to the 200s BC. The church of Colossae was founded by Epaphras, Pastor Epaphras. It's assumed he traveled to Ephesus and was saved there during Paul's two-year ministry as recorded in Acts 19. It's assumed that's where Epaphras came to faith in Christ, and then he returned back to his people in Colossae presented the gospel to them, and the church was born. Colossians 1, 5 through 7 speaks to this directly, how Epaphras brought the gospel to them. He's likely pastored the church since then, and now at this point, he's made his way all the way to Rome to meet with Paul and to get help regarding controversy in the church. Now, his trip from Colossae to Rome was no small journey. Before planes, trains, and automobiles, the trip from Colossae to Rome was either 1,000 miles by boat or 1,500 miles by foot. Imagine if your church had a theology problem and you knew that John MacArthur was the only person who could solve this particular problem. Would you send Pastor Paul Cummings 1,000 miles on foot to Los Angeles to get his theological help? Well, that is Pastor Epaphras' dedication and concern for this congregation, for his flock. What is the controversy? What is, what is Epaphras coming to Paul about? Well, it's not spelled out for us directly. We just get some hints from the text as we go along. There's a Colossian false teaching happening. It seems to be somewhat connected to the Gnosticism that was rising, but also altogether different. You have Jew Jewish legalistic teaching <clears throat> that was clearly a factor, given Paul's pointed responses concerning Jewish laws and festivals in chapter 2, verse 16. And so some form of legalism to the Old Testament law was likely part of the culprit. But there's more to it than that. In secular society in Colossae, it was a, a city that held angels and spirits in very high regard. They looked to 
good spirits to angels to protect them from evil spirits and from demons. Confirming this notion, archaeologists have found a stone amulet in the Colossian ruins containing this statement. The amulet reads, Michael, Gabriel, Oriel, Raphael, protect the one who wears this. So that's a superstitious reference to angels seeking their help. These angelic superstitions were also causing church problems. We've got angel worship that might have been an issue as Paul specifically mentions the worship of angels as disqualifying in 2.18 of this book. So perhaps Jesus himself was even being called an angel and not a man. So the false teaching, whatever it was specifically, we don't know, was clearly probably a syncretistic mix of works-based Judaism and ascetic angel worship. And this is why Epaphras ran to Paul in Rome, why he made the long journey. And so Paul writes this personal letter to the church. This is a very Christ-exalting letter, if you haven't noticed yet. Probably the most Christ-exalting letter, at least as exalting of Christ as any other letter ever written. Because Jesus is no mere angel. He's no mere good man. Jesus is God. And so when we come to our text today, this opening gospel explanation of Ephesians 2, or of Colossians 1, our Ephesians 2 equivalent, Paul is not here focusing on faith by grace alone, as he did there in Ephesians 2. He is explaining that salvation comes from Christ's bodily death alone, and the importance of not being led astray from that simple faith. Essentially, with our three verses today, Paul is instructing the Colossians and us to cling to Christ and to reject all new doctrines about him. Well, why does Paul do this? What's his first reason? What's the first reality about yourself that you need to know and you need to cling to? Reality number one this morning, you have been reconciled through death. Reconciled through death. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 again. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Here is the gospel in a nutshell. You were sinners, and now you've been reconciled by God himself and made saints. This, again, is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in a nutshell, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, that God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. There is an overwhelming shift in tone here in Colossians 1, coming out of the last six verses. The previous six verses, Paul has just been exalting Christ. We sang about it this morning. What a beautiful song. The last two sermons from this pulpit have been titled, The Preeminence of Christ, part one and two. So appropriate. Christ has been exalted and displayed as the sovereign creator, as the sustainer of the universe, as the head of the church, and the fullness of God come in human flesh. That's a glorious passage, and with this this view of Christ, we've been soaring into the heavenlies, but now Paul brings us back to earth. And you, verse 21, all this incredible truth about Christ, it pertains to you, Colossians, to you, people of Eastridge Baptist. Well, what about you? Well, once you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Friends, this is all of us. From those who were raised Christian, homeschooled, to the raucous pagan idolater. 
This is a description of everyone's life B.C., before Christ. Before Christ, we were all alienated. This verb speaks to our condition, who we were passively, who we were by our very nature. The sin nature we entered this world with as an infant, it put us into a straitjacket of alienation from God. The word literally means apart from togetherness. We were both estranged from God, apart from him, and out of his family, aliens to the kingdom. We were also hostile in mind, the verse says. This is the active element of our lives caused by our sin nature. The mind is one's inward disposition, the mindset, the way one thinks. Humans, we, we rebel against God first and foremost in our minds. We are darkened in our understanding, Ephesians 4.18 says. It literally says, darkened in our minds. Like the devil before us, we are active in our hostility to the God-man, Jesus Christ. We oppose him as enemy. Until we bow the knee and surrender to Christ, we stand erect and shake our fist at Christ. And the, the package picture of these two terms, you might compare them to if your spouse or if your family turned their back on you. Just imagine being kicked out of your house, made homeless, left to fend for yourself. You're no longer considered family, but worse, you're their sworn enemy. They might help a stranger, but not you. At the sight of you, they walk the other way. You've been alienated from them. They are hostile toward you. And that's how all unbelievers are toward God. It's them turning their backs on God. At the thought of him, they walk the other way. They want nothing to do with him. If you've ever handed out tracts before, especially ones that have the name Jesus right on the front, you will see firsthand that, yes, some people take it, but for as many as take it, there are more that reject it because they are alienated and hostile from the Savior, Jesus Christ. Such hostility of heart and mind toward God makes people blatantly wicked in their actions too. The beliefs of the mind directly impact the actions of the body. Verse 21 concludes, doing evil deeds. That's what we do. The hostile roots of thinking, they form deep tendrils in our mind and produce wicked fruits in our lives. Friends, we're not just born sinners by nature. We sin by choice. We choose to sin. We choose and love evil deeds, and we are all guilty for it. Evil, that's the, the quality of our works. There is none who does good. No, not one. And so as unbelievers, there is nothing we do that is good. Friends, this is simply a picture of what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins, to be following the course of this world, to live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind. Perhaps this is still you, even you right now, though you've gotten up early at 8.30 to make it to church. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins and submitted your life to Christ. This description in verse 21 is only past tense for the born-again believer. If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, if you don't worship him as your God, then verse 21 is still your present reality. Have you bowed the knee to Christ? Have you surrendered your whole heart and your whole mind and life to following and worshiping King Jesus? If you have, and if you do, 
verse 22 will also be true of you. Look at the extraordinary news of verse 22. Look there, verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. For those who have believed in Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. Reconciliation, how we desperately need that. We were hostile enemies of God, and yet he has repaired the relationship, forgiven us, and made us one again. I just love the concept of reconciliation. It's poignant. It's very, it's very touchable. Not too far back in my distant past, sad to say, I, my brother and I had a falling out on the golf course. The day was off to a bad start before even reaching hole one. We were playing at the break of dawn, trying to get a round of golf in before work. My brother showed up late, so we missed our tea time, and then he continued to act slowly. Started getting grumpy. Then I realized on the first tee that I'd left my laser distance rangefinder at another golf course weeks previously, a $300 piece of equipment that might be gone now for good. Grumpiness takes it up a notch. Then I get a very bad score on the first hole and completely ruined my round just right out of the gate. Can't recall the last time I've been this grumpy. And then on the second tee box, my brother asks me what club I'm going to hit, which is technically a no-no in golf, though in tournaments it's illegal, but people do it often enough in casual rounds. And perturbed that he would dare ask me this question, when he can tell I'm grumpy, I give him the silent treatment. I just ignore him. He gets angry, and he chews me out for being rude all morning. I erupt back and declare I don't want to be around him, and I skip hole two altogether and just play in front of him the rest of the day. Great brothers right there. <laughs> After the separated round, I try to fix things in the clubhouse, but not the godly way, and I actually just make things worse. A severed relationship. Over golf. How stupid. But in a strange relationship nonetheless. Well, thankfully, a few weeks Later, yeah, it took a few weeks. Under the weight of conviction of my sin against him, I finally call him up and repent biblically, confessing my sins against him, owning them, seeking his forgiveness. And by God's grace, my brother, also a believer, grants me forgiveness. He then apologizes also for his mean words, and I'm able to forgive him. Reconciled. Friends, not enemies. Brothers, not estranged. Confession and forgiveness has the power to mend what's broken and to heal what's hurting. It's what enacts reconciliation between two parties. It's how you can be reconciled to God, the perfect one. He will forgive your sins if you come to him on his terms, confessing your sins and simply asking him for it, asking him for forgiveness. But this forgiveness was not cheap. It had to be purchased. Unlike my forgiveness toward my brother, which is relational forgiveness, the forgiveness God offers us was judicial. Judicial. There was a reckoning required. You and I, we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. We have committed cosmic treason against our creator. And just as a criminal law court cannot dismiss a criminal's penalty just because he asks nicely, nor can God simply dismiss your sins just because you ask him to. The penalty for sins is fixed, and it must be paid. And that's where Jesus steps in, the God-man. Jesus pays the penalty. Jesus physically 
takes our penalty upon himself in our place. Verse 22 of our text highlights this fact explicitly. Look again. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Paul doubly emphasizes the human nature of Jesus here. He says, in his body of flesh, not just his body, but his fleshly body, his real, physical, human body. I think Paul makes this emphasis for three reasons. One is to highlight that Jesus was not just a spirit. He was not just an angel like the kind the Colossians are worshiping. He's not an elite angel to add to their worship collection. He was and is a real and true flesh and bone human being. But second, Paul emphasizes the fleshly body to emphasize to the Jews that this was truly a bloody sacrifice. Verse 20 already spoke of the blood of the cross. All Jews, of which there were many in Colossae and probably many in this church, understood that there is no forgiveness from God available without the shedding of blood. They knew the death of a spirit being would satisfy nothing. What Hebrews 9.22 states explicitly is that what the Old Testament consistently taught, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There had to be a real flesh and blood sacrifice to atone for sin. And thirdly, Paul emphasizes the body of flesh to highlight the incarnation. Jesus did not save us from afar. God became one of us. He became embroiled in our painful world. Even though he is the image of the invisible God, even though he created all things for himself, even though he holds all things together every moment, he came into our world to save us from our sins. He took on flesh and blood, and in him the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I so appreciated the clarity of Elder Randy's sermon last week on the deity of Jesus. Belief in the deity of Christ is essential to saving faith. Another personal story, a while back I, I spent a good many months discipling and trying to help this young man in his, in, his, in his 30s, single man in his 30s, get his life together, both physically and spiritually. He seemed early on in our conversations to, to come to saving faith. He understood the gospel and it seemed that he put his trust in it. I was excited to hopefully one day baptize this man. But he continued to struggle with life and religion for, for nearly a year. COVID hit during that time and I chalked up his challenges to the church being closed for those first couple of months. But finally at a breaking point one day I realized I simply needed to examine his faith with him. So I was going to ask him a series of questions to help him determine where he was at in his belief in the gospel. My very first question, very first question to him was, do you believe that Jesus is God? His response, no, of course not. <laughs> what? Somehow I had missed this all along, to my shame. Well, he prophesied to believe many Christian truths, like Jesus dying on the cross. He believed Jesus rose from the dead. He understood his personal need to repent from sin. He did not yet believe that Jesus was actually, truly God. And that's a condition of saving faith to believe Jesus is God and to submit to him as God. And now it, it, it made perfect sense why this young man was simply not growing in his faith because he did not have saving faith. Friends, our Savior Jesus is God. And this God became one of us. He became man, fully man and fully God. And after living a sinless life, 
He died for us so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be forgiven, not enemies, but friends, not estranged, but brothers. Oh, the love of Christ, that he would lay down his life for his friends, and so we are. Do you believe this reality? Do you believe this? The truth is this. In his body of flesh, God the Son died to reconcile us to God. For those who believe, though we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Praise God. Now, friends, this was no mere accident, no mere uh, things were going all right and we took this path. No, this, Christ did this for a reason. There's a purpose behind his sacrificial death. There's a second reality that was the driving motive behind what Christ did. Our first reality is that you have been reconciled through death so that you are, reality number two, ready for eternity. Reality number two in our text, you are ready for eternity. Look again at verse 22. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Wow. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's your future presentation to God the Father. Think of a wedding. The white wedding dress is a common staple of society. Brides deck themselves out in perfect white, doing their best to impress one person with their beauty, their groom. Every bride wants to look gorgeous for their man. My wife was no exception, and yes, she did succeed. Though the white dress at a wedding is meant to signify purity, the bride is communicating that she is perfect in purity, unstained from sexual immorality. She has kept her slate white and clean just for her husband. Unfortunately, that's not often the case today, but that's what the white dress is all about. Take your Bibles and turn with me over to Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Revelation 19. We as the church are the bride of Christ. We await what Revelation 19 talks about, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we are presented, we believers are presented to God the Son as his bride. Revelation 6. 19, excuse me, 19, 6 through 8, reads, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the end goal to which Christ died. The end goal to which your entire Christian life is driving. Your purity before God at this awesome event. The only way to be pure before God is to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, like the white dress of a bride. The only way is through Jesus Christ's death. That's what our verse, Colossians 1.22, explains. He died so that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him on that day. 
Paul heaps up these terms to explain more fully who we will be at that presentation. The first word, holy, means sinless, set apart, set apart from sin, set apart to God. We will be genuinely holy as God is holy. Blameless, the second word is the absence of any defect. The idea is without blemish. It's a moral word used of those who were without any fault in a matter. The word itself is also consistently used of sacrificial lambs who were free from any flaw. This was Christ, the spotless lamb, the blameless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and this blamelessness will be yours. Above reproach, the third term here means unaccusable. In legal terms, nobody could bring a charge against this person. From a human standpoint, according to 1 Timothy 3, this is what men must be in order to be elders and deacons, above reproach, no charge able to be brought against him. But even elders and deacons, we sin at times in our motives and our minds and on the golf course, right? So while outwardly we must be without reproach, inwardly we know ourselves still to be men who err, men who sin. But on that last day, even these hidden sins will be wiped away. This is beyond reproach from God's perspective. This is truly, holy, completely beyond reproach. There is no sin connected with the person. On the whole, these three terms paint a portrait of a person so utterly free from sin, they are perfect in God's sight. Literally perfect. They are set apart from sin. They are free from any defect. Nobody can accuse them of any wrong whatsoever. And friend, that is you. That is you. Underline it, highlight it, circle it, whatever you need to do. Christ died to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. This, I believe, was the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, 2, a famous verse explains, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Why did Christ lower himself, taking on the form of a man, not clinging tightly to the glory that was his as God, but shamefully and humbly taking on humanity for the purpose of dying on a cross? Why? It's for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, 2 says. And what was that joy? Our verse tells us in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Christ did not come to earth to die and improve his own life or to fix his own relationship with God. That was perfect. Those were already perfect. Christ suffered among us and for us for the sole purpose so you could rejoice in the glories of God forever, having been made like him, holy and blameless and above reproach. That is the end for which Christ came, to glorify God by making you sinful, hostile-minded you ready for eternity. Friend, in the midst of your life today, Christ is sanctifying you. He's making you more like himself. He is preparing you for this glorification when all sin will be stripped away and you'll stand before God dressed in white. And friend, aspects of that are yours even now, even today. For instance, as a believer, 
You have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, charged to your account. You are positionally holy before God right now. That's why Paul's ubiquitous term for Christians throughout his writings is saints. That's literally in the Greek, holy ones. You are holy ones right now. That is your spirit-inspired title. Think of it. Paul doesn't call Christians Christians. Does Paul ever use that term for us? No, that was an ancient slur developed by pagans. Paul, inspired by God the Spirit, called Christians holy ones. Believer, God calls you a holy one. That's your biblical title. And and you are thus blameless before him right now. Positionally, you have been declared righteous. There is no blame that can be put on you. You are above reproach even now. Satan tries, doesn't he? He tries to accuse you. Like with Joshua, the filthily dressed high priest in Zechariah 3, Satan goes before the throne of God to accuse us and expose to God all our demerits. But Christ won't hear it. Not for Joshua, not for you. Just as he rebukes Satan and vindicated Joshua the priest in that throne room scene, so he rejects and reproaches from, uh, he rejects all the reproaches from Satan against you, even now. And as Hebrews 12, 2 also says, Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and from there he can dismiss any charge brought against you. And so, while you are these things now positionally before God on the last day, you will be these things completely. Completely. It's like, it's like an inmate who has just been pardoned in the courts but is yet to be set free from the jail cell that he lives in. You have been declared holy and righteous though you've not yet been set free from this body of sin and decay. This is the end for which Christ died to present you the church, his bride, holy and blameless and above reproach. And he has made you and he is making you ready for eternity, even right now. This is your reality. You have been reconciled through his death so that you are ready for eternity. But wait, there's more. While Paul has overabundantly given you and I reasons to live out our days for him, he gives us another one, a warning even, a conditional statement. And this is reality number three. You have been reconciled through death so that you are ready for eternity. Reality number three, as long as you are resolute in faith. Resolute in faith. Verse 23, we come to it now. It feels almost like an entirely different message. Like a good Agatha Christie murder mystery, the plot and direction here changes quite suddenly. But Paul has a clear purpose in mind for this shift. Look with me at verse 23. Verse 23, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul's main point in this verse is that he who stops short in the race and does not reach the finish line cannot obtain the prize. The verse starts with an if. The glorious truths of verse 22 only apply to you if verse 23 is also true of you. And Paul adds indeed, and as one commentator puts it, this adds a touch of eagerness. 
The expectation is that you will continue in the faith. But indeed, you must, you must continue in the faith if you want the glorious realities of verse 22 to be true of you. Continue here in verse 23 is in the present tense and active voice. This is something you and I must be doing. It's not passive. We must actively continue. We must actively remain true. We must actively persevere. In the faith is the realm of our continuance, our perseverance. We must continue in that reconciliation that we have received. But how? But, but why? The rest of the verse explains. Can't move my paper. There we go. Paul continues, verse 23. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Here's another three-strand chord, perhaps paralleling holy, blameless, and above reproach. Stable there in verse 23. It's the idea of firmly established. It's a passive verb in the perfect tense. This expresses a result done to the believer in the past that continues to have an effect in the present. Something that's happened to you in the past that is still affecting you today. God at one point in the past established you. He gave you a strong foundation of gospel truth and that foundation continues to affect you right now. This is where your stability comes from, God and his gospel. Secondly is steadfast or immovable. The, the root of this word is, uh, it comes from the Greek word for chair. And the, the meaning of the word grew to mean that one that's locked in place, that's stable. Think of a big throne room kind of chair. Applied to us, it's as if we're seated with our pants super glued to the chair beneath us. We're not going anywhere. This is the inward conviction of a believer based upon what has been done to him by God. Because he's been reconciled, because he's been forgiven and redeemed, there's no way he's leaving such life-changing glory. It's this conviction. We're steadfast. And the third phrase is not moving away from. It's a simple phrase depicting a person that clings to Christ who will not move away from, will not abandon the hope of the gospel. He will not wake, walk away from this promise of eternity, the one for which he longs and hopes. And so it's time for an important question. Is this just a hypothetical statement? Or can you and I actually walk away from the faith? Can we abandon that which we have believed? Well, it sure seems from certain scriptures that this was and is a true possibility for God's people. The whole book of Hebrews, think of it, the whole book of Hebrews was written to Jews who were tempted to abandon Jesus and return to Judaism. That's the whole purpose of that book. Don't do it. Jesus is better. Stick with Jesus. Paul is likewise writing this letter in Colossians to unpack his fear that some Colossian Christians would abandon the gospel for worldly philosophy, for false, a false Jesus. Look ahead into Colossians 2 for a moment. A couple of verses here to see Paul's fear. Colossians 2.1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Colossians 2.4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Look at 2.18. Let no one disqualify you, 
insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. This is Paul's purpose for writing the letter, to exhort the Colossians to love Christ and to hold fast to Christ. And what happens if they don't? What happens if they are deluded by plausible arguments and taken captive by philosophy? 2.18, they're disqualified. This is Paul's grave concern. False teaching in their church, leading them away from the faith. The central purpose of the letter is what verse 23 says in a nutshell. It's a call to persevere in the faith. Do not abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ for something else. Now this concept is challenging indeed, for we believe, at least I do, that true Christian, the true Christian has eternal security. The true Christian cannot lose his salvation. He cannot be unforgiven, unreconciled, unjustified. What God has once declared righteous, he is not going to undeclare righteous. Verses like John 10, 28, and 29 speak clearly to this. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Romans 8, 30 through 39, mountaintop passage. It expounds this truth too, and it concludes, nothing can separate us from the love of our Lord, uh, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so yes, to borrow the cliche phrase, once saved, always saved. So how does this work? How can there be those in the church who move away from the gospel while we know that believers are eternally secure? How, do, how does this work? How should we think about this? Well, the proof is in the pudding. Those who are genuinely born again have received the Holy Spirit and have been made new creations. They will persevere. Those who merely hear the word and acquiesce to it believing the facts but not surrendering their lives, have not been made new. They've been affected positively by the gospel, certainly. Maybe their lives have improved, certainly. They may even look like new creations as they join a new community and adopt new values and mores. But Jesus is not their true God. They do not truly worship him nor submit to him and do whatever he asks. These will not persevere. An early church pastor named Tertullian remarked on this dilemma. Writing around 200 AD, he said, while the corn husks of light faith fly away, the mass of corn is laid up the pure in the garden of God. True believers will persevere. But why then the passionate call to persevere if we're going to anyway? Why does Paul command us in verse 23 to continue in the faith? Why is this a conditional statement upon which our holy, blameless, above reproach, eternal life is based upon? Because these exhortations are part of God's ways to keep us walking with him. Think of it, friends. God uses means of the spoken or written gospel proclamation to bring you and I to salvation. God doesn't use rocks. He uses us or the things we've written to bring the gospel to people. The gospel had to be communicated by other humans. God uses means to share the gospel. Likewise, God also uses human proclamation like calls to persevere to keep people in the faith. 
This is the means, one of the means he uses to call you and I to persevere. And friend, Christian, you must heed this call. You must heed this call. You must continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel to which you've been called. Do not let yourself be led astray by false teaching. Know the truth and cling to it. Know the Savior and cling to him. Friend, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. History reminds us there was once a day when people wrote and received letters back and forth, and that included the President of the United States. In 1984, a letter was received by President Ronald Reagan from a seventh grader. Dear Mr. President, my name is Andy Smith. I am a seventh grade student at Irmo Middle School in Irmo, South Carolina. Today, my mother declared my bedroom a disaster area. I would like to request federal funds to hire a crew to clean up my room. I am prepared to provide the initial funds if you will provide matching funds for this request. I know you will be fair when you consider my request. I will be awaiting your reply. Sincerely yours, Andy Smith. Famously, President Ronald Reagan responded to the seventh grader with a handwritten letter. Reagan was an open advocate of limited government and personal responsibility, and so you won't be too surprised by his warm response. He responded, I'm sorry to be so late in answering your letter, but as you know, I've been in China and found your letter here upon my return. Your application for disaster relief has been duly noted, but I must point out one technical problem. The authority declaring the disaster is supposed to make the request. In this case, your mother. However, setting that aside, I'll have to point out the larger problem is available funds. This has been a year of disasters, 539 hurricanes as of May 4th and several more since, numerous floods, forest fires, drought in Texas, and a number of earthquakes. What I'm getting at is that the funds are dangerously low. May I make a suggestion? This administration, believing that government has done many things that could better be done by volunteers at the local level, has sponsored a private sector initiative program calling upon people to practice volunteerism in the solving of a number of local problems. Your situation appears to be unnatural. I'm sure your mother was fully justified in proclaiming your room a disaster. Therefore, you are in excellent position to launch another volunteer program to go along with the more than 3,000 already underway in our nation. Congratulations. Give my best regards to your mother. Sincerely, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> True story. Basically, the president said, Andy, go clean your room. And in other words, don't ask the government to do for you what you should do for yourself. Well, what's the connection? Why bring that story in? Christian, do your part in the task God has called you to. Don't be lazy. Don't expect others to do it for you. Actively continue in the faith. God has already done so much for you through Jesus Christ. He has reconciled you through the physical body of his son being put to death on your behalf. And one day he will present you before himself as a spotless bride forever to spend eternity in blissful joy with him. You now have a spirit-inspired responsibility that you must follow. Continue in the faith. Yes, God is working with you and for you. He is fully involved in keeping you as part of his flock. He will not let you go. He will hold you fast. The same spirit that has saved you is the same spirit that keeps you. But you and I, 
We have a responsibility. Continue in the faith. Paul says, remember your foundation. Be stable and steadfast on the truth. Do not shift from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And if you indeed continue in the faith, you will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And this, based on the merciful blood of Christ, shed for you. We saw three realities in our text today. You have been reconciled through death so that you are ready for eternity as long as you are resolute in faith. And three questions for you as we go today. Friend, are you reconciled? Do you know Christ as your God and Savior? Second, are you ready? Is your life growing and maturing and becoming more like Christ as heaven's door approaches? And third, are you resolved? Will you, by the Spirit in you, continue in the faith, immovable to the very end? Father, may everyone in this room be able to answer yes to all three of those questions. May everyone here know the fullness of your great love given in Christ Jesus. Oh God, you are rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive together with Christ. We have been saved by grace. And not only that, you have and you will raise us up with your Son and seat us with him in heavenly places so that in the coming ages of eternity, you might show the immeasurable riches of your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, may we actively hasten on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. God, may your own hand guide us there. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.